Chapter 2 It was strange to Robin to walk about the city and to view all that he saw from his new interior position. The last time that he had been in his own country on that short visit with Captain Fortescue, he had been innocent in the eyes of the law, or, at least, no more guilty than any one of the hundreds of young men who, in spite of the regulations, were sent abroad to finish their education amid Catholic surroundings. Now, however, his very presence was an offense. He had broken every law framed expressly against such cases as his. He had studied abroad. He had been ordained beyond the seas. He had read his mass in his own bedchamber. He had, practically, received a confession— and it was his fixed and firm intention to reconcile as many of her grace's subjects as possible to the Roman sea. And to tell the truth, he found pleasure in the sheer adventure of it, as would every young man of spirit, and he wore his fine clothes, clinked his sword, and cocked his secular hat with delight. The burden of what he had heard still was heavy on him. It was true that in a manner inconceivable to any but a priest it lay apart altogether from his common consciousness. He had talked freely enough to Mr. Sharnock and the rest, he could not, even by a momentary lapse, allow what he knew to color even the thoughts by which he dealt with men in ordinary life. For, though it was true that no confession had been made, yet it was in virtue of his priesthood that he had been told so much. Yet there were moments when he walked alone, with nothing else to distract him, when the cloud came down again. And there were moments, too, in spite of himself, when his heart beat with another emotion, when he pictured what might not be five years hence if Elizabeth were taken out of the way and Mary reigned in her stead. He knew from his father how swiftly and enthusiastically the old faith had come back with Mary Tudor after the winter of Edward's reign. And if, as some estimated, a third of England were still convincedly Catholic, and perhaps not more than one-twentieth convincedly Protestant, might not Mary Stuart, with her charm, accomplish more even than Mary Tudor, with her lack of it? He saw many fine sights during the three or four days after his coming to London, for he had to wait there at least that time until a party that was expected from the north should arrive with news of where he was to go. These were the instructions he had had from Rames. So he walked freely abroad during these days to see the sights, and even ventured to pay a visit to Fathers Garnet and Southwell, two Jesuits that arrived a month ago, and were for the present lodging in my Lord Vox's house in Hackney. He was astonished at Father Southwell's youthfulness. This priest had landed but a short while before, and for the present was remaining quietly in the edge of London with the older man, for himself was scarcely twenty-five years old, and looked twenty at the most. He was very quiet and sedate, with a face of almost feminine delicacy, and passed a good deal of his leisure, as the old lord told Robin, in writing verses. He appeared a strangely fine instrument for such heavy work as was a priest's. On another day, Robin saw the archbishop land at Westminster Stairs. It was a brilliant day of sunshine as he came up the river bank, and a little crowd of folks at the head of the stairs drew his attention. Then he heard, out of sight, the throb of oars grow louder, then a cry of command, and as he reached the head of the stairs and looked over, the archbishop, with a cloak thrown over his rocher, was just stepping out of the huge gilded barge, whose blue and silver liveried oarsmen steadied the vessel, or stood at the salute. It was a gay and dignified spectacle, as he perceived, in spite of his intense antipathy to the sight of a man who, to him, was no better than a usurper and a deceiver of the people. Dr. Whitgift, too, was no friend to Catholics. He had, for instance, deliberately defended the use of the rack against them and others, unashamed, and in one particular instance, at least, as Bishop of Worcester, had directed its exercise in the county of Denby. These things were perfectly known, of course, even beyond the seas, to the priests who were to go on the English mission, in surprising detail. Robin knew even that this man was wholly ignorant of Greek. He looked at him carefully as he came up the stairs, and was unsurprised at the kindly face of him, thin-lipped, however, though with pleasant searching eyes. His coach was waiting outside Old Palace Yard, and Robin, following with the rest of the little crowd, saluted him respectfully as he climbed into it, followed by a couple of chaplains. 
As he walked on, he glanced back across the river at Lambeth. There it lay then, the home of Warham and Pole and Morton, with the water lapping its towers. It had once stood for the spiritual state of God in England, facing its partner, and sometimes its rival, Westminster and Whitehall. Now it was a department of the civil state, merely. It was occupied by men such as Dr. Grindle, sequestrated and deprived of even his spiritual functions, by the woman who now grasped all the reins of the Commonwealth, and now again by the man whom he had just seen, placed there by the same woman to carry out her will more obediently against all who denied her supremacy in matters spiritual as well as temporal, whether papists or independents. The priest was astonished, as he reached the precincts of Whitehall, to observe the number of guards that were everywhere visible. He had been warned at Rames not to bring himself into too much notice, no more than markedly to avoid it. So he did not attempt to penetrate even the outer courts or passages. Yet it seemed to him that an air of watchfulness was everywhere. At the gate towards which he looked, at least half a dozen men were on formal guard, their uniforms and weapons sparkling brilliantly in the sunshine. And besides these, within the open doors, he caught sight of a couple of officers. As he stood there, a man came out of one of the houses near the gate and turned towards it. He was immediately challenged and presently passed on within, where one of the officers came forward to speak to him. Then Robin thought he had stood looking long enough and moved away. He came back to the city across the fields, half a mile away from the river, and indeed it was a glorious sight he had before him. Here about him was open ground on either side of the road on which he walked, and there in front rose up on the slope of the hill the long line of great old houses beyond the stream that ran down into the Thames. Old religious houses for the most part, now disguised and pulled about beyond recognition, ranging right and left from the Ludgate itself. Behind these rose again towers and roofs, and high above all the tall spire of the cathedral, as if to gather all into one culminant aspiration. The light from the west lay on every surface that looked to his left, golden and rosy. Elsewhere lay blue and dusky shadows. "'There is a letter for you, sir,' said the landlord, who had an uneasy look on his face as the priest came through the entrance of the inn. Robin took it. Its superscription ran shortly, To Mr. Albin at the Red Bull Inn in Cheapside. Haste, haste, haste. He turned it over. It was sealed plainly on the back without arms or any device. It was a thick package and appeared as if it might hold an enclosure or two. Robin had learned caution in a good school, and what is yet more vital in true caution, an appearance of carelessness. He weighed the packet easily in his hand as if it were of no value, though he knew it might contain very questionable stuff from one of his friends, and glanced at a quantity of baggage that lay heaped beside the wall. "'What is all this?' he said. "'Another party arrived?' "'No, sir. The party is leaving. Rather, it is left already. And the gentleman bade me have the baggage ready here. They would send for it later, they told me.' This was unusually voluble from this man. Robin looked at him quickly and away again. "'What party?' he said. Uh, "'The gentleman you were with this two nights past, sir,' said the landlord keenly. Robin was aware of a feeling as if a finger had been laid on his heart, but not a muscle of his face moved. "'Indeed,' he said. "'They told me nothing of it.' Then he moved on easily, feeling the landlord's eyes in every inch of his back, and went leisurely upstairs. He reached his room, bolted the door softly behind him, and sat down. His heart was going now like a hammer. Then he opened the packet. An enclosure fell out of it, also sealed, but without direction of any kind. Then he saw that the sheet in which the packet had come was itself covered with writing, rather large and sprawling, as if written in haste. He put the packet aside and then lifted the paper to read it. When he had finished, he sat quite still. The room looked to him misty and unreal. The paper crackled in his shaking fingers, and a drop of sweat ran suddenly into the corner of his dry lips. Then he read the paper again. It ran as follows. It is all found out, we think. I find myself watched at every point, and I can get no speech with B. 
I cannot go forth from the house without a fellow to follow me, and two of my friends have found the same. Mr. G, too, hath been with Mr. W. this three hours back. By chance I saw him come in, and he has not yet left again. Mr. C.H. is watching for me while I write this, and will see that this letter is bestowed on a trusty man who will bring it to your inn, and with it another letter to bid our party save themselves while they can. I do not know how we shall fare, but we shall meet at a point that is fixed, and after that evade or die together. You were right, you see. Mr. G. has acted the traitor throughout, with Mr. W.'s connivance and assistance. I beg of you then to carry this letter, which I send in this, to her for whom we have forfeited our lives, or at least our country. Or, if you cannot take it with safety, master the contents of it by note, and deliver it to her with your own mouth. She has been taken back to sea again, whither you must go, and all her effects searched. There was no signature, but there followed a dash of the pen, and then a scrawled, A.B., as if an interruption had come, or as if the man who was with the writer would wait no longer. A third time Robin read it through. It was terribly easy of interpretation. B was Ballard, G was Gifford, W was Walsingham, C.H. was Sharnock, Her was Mary Stewart, C was Chartley. It fitted and made sense like a child's puzzle. And if the faintest doubt could remain in the most incredulous mind as to the horrible reality of it all, there was the piled luggage downstairs that would never be sent for, and never, indeed, needed again by its owners in this world. Then he took up the second sealed packet, and held it unbroken, while his mind flew like a bird, and in less than a minute he decided and opened it. It was a piteous letter, signed again merely, A.B., and might have been written by any broken-hearted reverend lover to his beloved. It spoke an eternal goodbye. The writer said that he would lay down his life gladly again in such a cause if it were called for, and would lay down a thousand if he had them. He entreated her to look to herself, for that no doubt every attempt would now be made to entrap her and it warned her to put no longer any confidence in a detestable knave G.G. Finally, he begged that Yezu would have her in his holy keeping, and that if matters fell out as he thought they would, she would pray for his soul, and the souls of all that had been with him in the enterprise. He read it through three or four times. Every line and letter burned itself into his brain. Then he tore it across and across. Then he tore the letter addressed to himself in the same manner. Then he went through all the fragments, piece by piece, tearing each into smaller fragments, till there remained in his hands just a bunch of tiny scraps, smaller than snowflakes, and these he scattered out of the window. Then he went to his door, unbolted it, and walked downstairs to find the landlord. It was not until ten days later, soon after dawn, that Robin set out on his melancholy errand. He rode out northward as soon as the gates were opened, with young Mr. Arnold, a priest ordained with him in Rames, and one of his party, disguised as a servant, following him on a pack-horse with the luggage. It was a misty morning, white and cheerless, with the early fog that had drifted up from the river. Last night the news had come in that Anthony and at least one other had been taken near Harrow, in disguise, and the streets had been full of riotous rejoicing over the capture. He had thought it more prudent to wait till after receiving the news, which he so much dreaded, lest haste should bring suspicion on himself and the message that he carried since for him too to disappear at once would have meant an almost inevitable association of him with the party of plotters, but it had been a hard time to pass through. Early in the morning, after Anthony's flight, he had awakened to hear a rapping upon the inn door, and, peeping from his window, had seen a couple of plainly dressed men waiting for admittance, but after that he had seen no more of them. He had deliberately refrained from speaking with the landlord, except to remark again upon the luggage of which he caught a sight, piled no longer in the entrance, but in the little room that the man himself used. The landlord had said shortly that it had not yet been sent for, and the greater part of the day, after he had told the companions that had come with him from Rames that he had had a letter which seemed to show that the party with whom they had made friends had disappeared and were probably under suspicion and had made the necessary arrangements for his own departure with young Mr. Arnold, he spent in walking abroad as usual. The days that followed had been bitter and heavy. 
He had liked neither to stop within doors nor to go abroad, since the one course might arouse inquiry, and the second lead to his identification. He had gone to my Lord Vox's house again and again, with his friend and without him. He had learned of the details of Anthony's capture, though he had not dared even to attempt to get speech with him. And, further, that unless the rest of the men were caught, it would not be easy to prove anything against him. One thing, therefore, he prayed for with all his heart, that the rest might yet escape. He told his party something of the course of events, but not too much. On the Sunday that intervened, he went to hear Mass in Fetter Lane, where numbers of Catholics resorted, and there, piece by piece, learned more of the plot than even Anthony had told him. Mr. Arnold was a Lancashire man and a young convert of Oxford, one of that steady small stream that poured over to the continent, a sufficiently well-born and intelligent man to enjoy acting as a servant, which he did with considerable skill. It was common enough for gentlemen to ride side by side with their servants when they had left the town, and by the time that the two were clear of the few scattered houses outside the city gates, Mr. Arnold urged on his horse, and they rode together. Robin was in somewhat of a difficulty as to how far he was justified in speaking of what he knew. It was true that he was not at liberty to use what Anthony had originally told him, but the letter and the commission which he had received certainly liberated his conscience to some degree, since it told him plainly enough that there was a plot on behalf of Mary, that certain persons, one or two of whom he knew for himself, were involved in it, that they were under suspicion, and that they had fled. Ordinary discretion, however, was enough to make him hold his tongue, beyond saying, as he had said already to the rest of them, that he was the bearer of a message from Mr. Babington, now in prison, to Mary Stewart. Mr. Arnold had been advertised that he might take up his duties in Lancashire as soon as he liked, but because of his inexperience and youth, it had been decided that he had better ride with Mr. Alban, so far as Chartley at least, and thence, if all were well, go on to Lancaster himself, where his family was known, and whither he could return, for the present, without suspicion. The roads, such as they were, were in a terrible state, still with the heavy rain of a few days ago, and the further showers that had fallen in the night. They made very poor progress, and by dinner-time were not yet in sight of Watford. But they pushed on, coming at last about one o'clock to that little town, all gathered together in the trench of the low hills. There was a modest inn in the main street, with a little garden behind it, and while Mr. Arnold took the horses off for watering, Robin went through to the garden, sat down, and ordered food to be served for himself and his man together. The day was warmer, and the sun came out as they sat over their meal. When they had done, Robin set his friend off again for the horses. They must not delay longer than was necessary if they wished to sleep at Leighton and give the horses their proper rest. When he was left alone, he fell a-thinking once more, and what with the morning's ride and the air and the sunshine and the sense of liberty, he was inclined to be more cheerful. Surely England was large enough to hide the rest of the plotters for a time until they could get out of it. Anthony was taken, indeed, yet, without the rest, he might very well escape conviction. Robin had not been challenged in any way. The gatekeepers had looked at him, indeed, as he came out of the city, but so they always did, and the landlady here had run her eyes over him, but that was the way of landladies who wished to know how much should be charged to travellers. And if he had come out so easily, why should not his friends? All turned now to his mind on whether the rest of the conspirators could evade the pursuivants or not. He stood up presently to stretch his legs before mounting again, and as he stood up he heard running footsteps somewhere beyond the house. They died away, but then came the sound of another runner, and of another, and he heard voices calling. Then a window was flung up beyond the house. Steps came rattling down the stairs within and passed out into the street. It was probably a bull that had escaped, or a mad dog, he thought, or some rustic excitement of that kind, and he thought he would go and see it for himself. So he passed out through the house, just in time to meet Mr. Arnold coming round with the horses. "'What was the noise about?' he asked. The other looked at him. "'I heard none, sir,' he said. "'I was in the stable.' Robin looked up and down the street. It seemed as empty as it should be on a summer's day. 
Two or three women were at the doors of their houses, and an old dog was asleep in the sun. There was no sign of any disturbance. "'Where is the woman of the house?' asked Robin. "'I do not know, sir.' They could not go without paying, but Robin marveled at the simplicity of these folks to leave a couple of guests free to ride away. He went within again and called out, but there was no one to be seen. "'This is laughable,' he said, coming out again. "'Shall we leave a mark behind us and be off?' "'Are they all gone, sir?' asked the other, staring at him. "'I heard some running and calling out just now,' said Robin. "'I suppose a message must have been brought to the house.' Then, as he stood still, hesitating, a noise of voices arose suddenly round the corner of the street, and a group of men with pitchforks ran out from a gateway on the other side, fifty yards away, crossed the road, and disappeared again. Behind them ran a woman or two, a barking dog, and a string of children. But Robin thought he had caught a glimpse of some kind of officer's uniform at the head of the running men, and his heart stood still. Neither of the two spoke for a moment. "'Wait here with the horses,' said Robin. "'I must see what all this is about.' Mr. Arnold was scarcely more than a boy still, and he had all the desire of a boy, if he saw an excited crowd, to join himself to it. But he was being a servant just now, and must do what he was told. So he waited patiently with the two horses that tossed their jingling heads and stamped and attempted to kick flies off impossibly remote parts of their bodies. Certainly the excitement was growing. After he had seen his friend walk quickly down the road and turn off where the group of rustically armed men had disappeared in the direction where newly made haystacks shaded their gables beyond the roofs of the houses, Several other figures appeared through the opposite gateway in hot pursuit. One was certainly a guard of some kind, a stout, important-looking fellow, who ran and wheezed as he ran loud enough to be heard at the inn door. The women standing before the houses, too, presently were after the rest, all except one old dame who put her head forth and peered this way and that with a vindictive anger at having been left all alone. More yet showed themselves, children dragging puppies after them, an old man with a large rusty sword, a couple of lads each with a pike, these appeared, like figures in a pantomime play, whisking into sight from between the houses and all disappearing again immediately. And then, all on a sudden, a great clamor of voices began, all shouting together, as if some quarry had been sighted. It grew louder. Sharp cries of command rang above the roar. Then there burst out of the side, where all had gone in, a ball of children, which exploded into fragments and faced about, still with a couple of puppies that barked shrilly. And then, walking very fast and upright, came Mr. Robin Audrey, white-faced and stern, straight up to where the lad waited with the horses. Robin jerked his head. Quick, he said, we must be off, or we shall be here all night. He gathered up his reins for mounting. What is it, sir? asked the other, unable to be silent. They have caught some fellows, he said. And the inn account, sir? Robin pulled out a couple of coins from his pouch. Put that on the table within, he said. We can wait no longer. Give me your reins. His manner was so dreadful that the young man dared ask no more. He ran in, laid the coins down, they were more than double what could have been asked for their entertainment, came out again, and mounted his own horse that his friend held. As they rode down the street, he could not refrain from looking back, as a great roar of voices broke out again, but he could see no more than a crowd of men, with pitchforks moving like spears on the outskirt as if they guarded prisoners within, come out between the houses and turn up towards the inn they themselves had just left. As they came clear of the village and out again upon the road, Robin turned to him, and his face was still pale and stern. "'Mr. Arnold,' he said, "'those were the last of my friends that I told you of. Now they have them all, and there is no longer any hope. They found them behind the haystacks next to the garden where we dined. They must have been there all night.'